Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. At the top of every month, I choose a filmmaker or genre of which I am woefully oblivious and discuss the significance of it with a guest, who will then recommend me three titles most relevant to the topic, which I will then watch and report back on in subsequent episodes. And this month... I'll be exploring some films of British filmmaker Mike Lee, and joining me to discuss is Tyler Smith of Battleship Pretension, who is joining me for, I think, a second time in 2019 when we talked about Harold Lloyd. That was, like, this year, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I think so. So, congratulations, Tyler. I don't remember. All I know is that this is my favorite show to be on. I will accept that compliment, whether it's facetious or not, so thank you very much for the, for the kind words, Tyler. Even I don't know if that's true. Um... <laughs> But uh, no, I do enjoy it because it just it allows a person to speak in terms of authorship or genre, and that's something that I really uh, enjoy. So, and, and of, of course, glad to be here. Well, well, we're always glad to have you, Tyler. Um, and, and of course, um, as a as a teacher, I'm sure this is a, also a fun podcast for you because you get to impart your wisdom upon a a, a willing student who actually uh, wants you to be speaking to them. I guess so. Um, I'm fairly new to teaching, and I think probably... I think probably looking at it as imparting my wisdom is probably a bad attitude. Okay. More just like... I I think I, I did a... I did a lecture a couple a couple years ago about film criticism and the way that I described us is that we are, you know, and I, I would say similar in a similar way about teachers. Um, we're ultimately the signpost. Like we can kind of direct you to where you need to go, mm-hmm. um, and, which is a very necessary thing. But in the end, the destination itself, you know, you shouldn't get it mixed up right. uh, with the signpost, you know. So in the end, it's just about opening, you know, awakening somebody's love of movies or at least directing it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they are not necessarily on their own, but they then define their own taste and and decide the films and filmmakers that they most respond to. Like, you can't do anything about that. And so um, there was a... I think I think it was Roger Ebert's negative review of um, Dead Poets Society, a film that I've never particularly liked. Mm-hmm. And he said that his one of his problems with it is that it's a it's a class about, you know, poetry. And at the end of the class, the students wound up loving the teacher mm-hmm. when, in fact, they should love poetry. <laughs> you know, that's how you know that the te- that's how you know the teacher has done it wrong. OK, is that. They probably couldn't name their favorite poet, but they could definitely talk about how much they liked this teacher because, you know, hey, he had us do unconventional things. Um, so I I've kind of look at it that way where, I mean, sure, if my students like me, great. But uh, <laughs> in the end, I just want them to, like, 
I want them to uh, really like film more and feel like they know more or they have a deeper understanding for it than they did before. Mm-hmm. Well, but even having said that, I mean, if you are and, and you you correct me if I'm wrong, but when it comes to your your the courses that you teach, it's it's a lot more uh, geared towards film history. Is that correct? Um, some of them, yes, but I also teach like a sort of a basic film aesthetics course. So, you know, there'll be a week on cinematography, a week on editing, a week on sound, that sort of thing. So (laughs) it's a combination of the two. I would, I would love to branch out and, and dig deeper into things. Like I would love to do, uh, a class built based around an entire filmmaker. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, but right now it's all, it's all just kind of the basics. I can understand that because one of the the best film courses I took in college was an entire course dedicated to the films of Billy Wilder, which was amazing and helped uh, certainly cement Billy Wilder as my favorite filmmaker in in, in the history of this this crazy thing we call life. Um, But now having said what you just said, is there still an element of, let's say you're teaching kids about... Citizen Kane, and they watch it, whether okay. it's in class or on their own, and they come back to you and be like, eh, I really didn't like that. Even though that you were, as you're saying, you're kind of acting as the guidepost, is there still an element where you're kind of like, well, that I'm, that's disappointing because I was hoping they would appreciate this movie like I do? Well, there's appreciate and there's like. Okay. Um, I have no expectation that an, an 18-year-old who's taking a, a cinema class at community college because it sounded like an easy way to get credit. I have no expectation of them watching Citizen Kane Mm -hmm. and really liking it, but hopefully through the lead up and then the discussion afterwards, hopefully they can appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm okay with that because, you know, there are movies that I appreciated but didn't like when I first saw them. And then I got older and then that appreciation turned into a real affection. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you can't make somebody like something Um, the thing that will bother me is, and I've started to incorporate this into my courses. Um, the thing that bothers me is dismissal. Um, if somebody is willing, is unwilling to approach a work of art that they don't like, Mm -hmm. um, as anything other than that, um, like the fact that they don't like it is the ultimate last word on the matter. And, Mm -hmm. Uh, so far I've run across that just maybe once or twice, just people that, that refuse to listen to anything I say, refuse to listen to anything their classmates say, all they know is they didn't like this and that's the end. Um, and that, that really bothers me, but no, I've, I do show Citizen Kane, uh, in my aesthetics class to talk about cinematography. Mm Um, and and I do it despite, and it's like there are, there are any number of films that I could show to exemplify really amazing cinematography that the kids would probably like more. Mm-hmm. But I want, but I want to show them Citizen Kane uh, because I want to show that older films, you know, adhere and in many cases establish some of these principles. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I I did that know I do that knowing full well that they probably won't like it that much. Okay. Um, but that's okay because, you know, uh, even even outside of film, there are times that I've been that I've gone to like a muse- like an art museum when I was a kid, and I was bored by it. I had nothing to really latch on to, and re- and but it got me 
familiarized with the idea of art. And frankly, one thing that I really want to try and do with my classes is establish that film is indeed an art form, mm -hmm. uh, that it's not purely entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but within even within the most entertaining films, there is artistry going on. Mm -hmm. And so having somebody try to understand or, or at least acknowledge that film does have artistry to it is something that uh, I want to try to accomplish. Well, the, and, and I'm curious, and with that uh, approach and, and also with the expectation that you're talking about, how do you balance the basically the ideas of um, what you what you feel like as an instructor you should be teaching to, to people just to kind of get a baseline education versus what you want to show people because of this idea of, um, I don't even want to say as like, here's a good example, but, but I guess it's more of just that general idea of how do you balance versus what you feel you need to do as an educator versus what you want to do as a, as a cinephile. I actually, I'll say this in my experience, the, the problem has been like, ultimately it comes down to what, what movies do I show, mm -hmm. you know, to exemplify one thing. Right. And so, uh, and so the idea of what I feel I should show and what I want to show, um, there's not much of a line between those two. If there's something that you feel you should show like academically you understand why it's good and why it exemplifies this thing you're talking about. And thus there will be an, an aspect of wanting to show it. I will say, so I taught a, I taught a, uh, Oh, what do you call it? a world cinema class? Okay. Um, last semester. And I taught it not in a, I taught it in chronological order. Um, I wasn't putting in purely in film history terms that like we mostly avoided really any kind of American film history. Uh, but I, we started in the 1900s, uh, you know, the 19 aughts and then just worked our way until the present. Um, and so, uh, and so as I went, I kind of got the, uh, got the, took the temperature of the class. And so when it came time to show like a Kurosawa film, mm. um, my my vote is always Rashomon, but I also looked at the class that I was dealing with and realized that that probably would not that they would that they would respond to it. But I could still accomplish what I wanted to in regards to the way Kurosawa makes films by showing them Hidden Fortress. And I think they would like Hidden Fortress more. Sure. Um, because then it also allows you to talk about, you know, to make to have a conversation that's more relevant to their lives. Because in the case of Hidden Fortress, it's like, OK, well, here's I would say it after. I didn't want to say it before, but I would say after that, like this had an impact on George Lucas and that sort of thing. But then I and then I could talk about the the interaction between Kurosawa and Western filmmaking and that sort of thing. So my preference would be Rashomon, but after a while you come to realize like, okay, as a teacher, I can probably get more mileage with this group mm -hmm. um, out of Hidden Fortress. If this were a group of, you know, if this were a film department where there was, where you could actually major in film uh, and you pro and so the class is probably full of people that are interested in film. If that's the case, then absolutely I'll talk about Rashomon. But you know, as a way to you kind of you have to make some of those small sacrifices in order to connect with uh, the students on their level. Mm -hmm. um, 
and their and their willingness to engage. So that's the only example I can really think of. For the rest of the time, it's ultimately just like I'd like to show this, but I'd also like to show this. Which one should I do? So, for example, um, when we when I teach about the use of color in film, um, I'm I am always torn between <laughs> Dick Tracy oh. and uh, and do the right thing. Oh, and wow. I ultimately okay. land on do the right thing because I feel like along with a really amazing use of color, it also is a is a culturally relevant film. Yeah. And I feel like we can get more uh, we can get more conversation out of it. That said, part of me still wants I just really want these kids to see <laughs> Dick Tracy because it's just such a it's such a strange film mm-hmm. in retrospect. So mm-hmm. um, and then like when we talk about authorship. Um, it's like, okay, well, there, there are so many options, like where, first off, which director do you pick as sort of your case study? Mm -hmm. And then within that, which movie do you pick as the, the essence of that director? Mm -hmm. Um, and so when dealing with, again, community college students, I find it's easier to go with either Wes Anderson or Tim Burton, because they're very easy to talk about as far as like discussing their films being similar from one to the next. Uh, So I landed on Tim Burton and then it's like, okay, so of his films, which ones do I, which one do I pick? (laughs) And it's like, well, I think that his best film is probably Ed Wood, Mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily the most indicative. Yeah because it doesn't have a lot of his like expressionistic roots or anything. Sure. So what I do show them is Batman returns. Okay. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that they had not seen the first one. So that's the one we watch and that, because that allows me to talk more about him, him as a filmmaker because he puts so much of himself and his own interests into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it also allows me to sort of, go through the back door and talk about German expressionism where it's not in the curriculum, but if you talk about Tim Burton and Batman returns, you can talk about that. So, (laughs) you know, I I do have a great deal of freedom in the classes that I teach, which is very exciting. Um, and, uh, and I will, and I will say that, you know, I think if the instructor has, when the instructor has more freedom to sort of choose the way in which they're going to demonstrate certain things, the more inherent passion they'll have. Sure. You know, if I'm forced to show a movie that I don't really like that much, um, then I will only ever be able to convey. I, I, I probably will not instill a love for that movie in my students. Yeah. Um, and there have been times like in that world cinema class, like for French New Wave, we watched um, Breathless, okay. um, a, a film that I have never that I understand and I appreciate, but I don't really respond to. Mm-hmm. And I tell the kids that I say, like, this is a film that does not really work for me, but it can work for you. And, and you know, and I want it and I talk about it on an academic level. Mm-hmm. But compared to something like Seventh Seal, where I, where I get like notably animated while I talk about it, you know, I'm sure the, the students pick up on that, but mm-hmm. I do think that you have to bring something of yourself to the, uh, to the curriculum. Are you ever tempted as a goof to just swap out Citizen Kane for, I don't know, let's say Bellatar's The Workmeister Harmonies? Uh, yes, of course I am. <laughs> um, but just, there are times when like there's, there'll be like a certain group of students that it's not that they're necessarily rowdy, but they just, it's just clear that they don't care that much. Sure. And so it's like, all right, well, um, go screw yourself. I'm changing the curriculum. (laughs) I was picking movies that I think 
you would enjoy, but also exemplify this. I'm going to go the other way with it now. Yeah. Now we're just going to watch nothing but foreign films, <laughs> nothing. And even then, like the essence of what people think, okay, we're watching persona. We're watching Bergmeister harmonies. We're watching funny games. Cause go fuck yourself. <laughs> oh, God. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, because I want this class, this class that you thought was going to be so easy, I want it to be work. It's going to be work for you. And I'm going, and by the way, I'm going to make a final that asks about specific plot points in these films so that you can't just sleep through them or leave. I, um, so, yes, that there is that temptation. I, I want to see Professor Tyler Smith the day after he showed everyone the 1997 foreign language version of Funny Games, walk in and be like, we're watching Funny Games. They're like, we already showed that. No, this is the Shot for Shot American remake. Then turning it on and just walking out of the room <laughs> and making them watch it again. That's that's a wonderful idea. Now, let me ask you, are you, in any of your classes, are you choosing to or have you been obligated to show them Birth of a Nation? No, I show stills uh, of Birth of a Nation because it is a, it is a film worth talking about um, for a number of reasons. Um, I also, not unlike the American Film Institute, um, if I'm going to show any clips, um, I'll show them from Intolerance. But I'm always going to, I will always discuss Birth of a Nation. It mm-hmm. It is worth discussing for film history reasons, mm-hmm. um, for filmmaking reasons, but also for cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. Um but that's the thing is at the same time, I also don't have, that's a long movie, you know? So <laughs> yeah. I am limited in the, in the films that I show, I am limited by the amount of time that I have because okay. I prefer, though I have been given permission to show longer movies that maybe dip into the following week. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I view it necessary, but honestly, I'd rather just have them watch it in one sitting and, uh, you know, so as much as I adore Lawrence of Arabia, that's out. Right. Well, as as Birth of a Nation. Well, and as someone who has covered um, Ingmar Bergman on this podcast, let me just suggest that if you ever have uh, need are in need of an idea of how to punish students, just show them the entire five and a half hour cut of Fanny and Alexander, the TV cut, and that's uh, that's that'll be enough, I think. Wouldn't it be funny if I did that as punishment and they all responded to it and then I said, hey, all my students who didn't care really liked it. What's your problem? <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, I, I, I will admit being marginally curious to check out the TV cut, seeing as I actually, of the three films that um, Josh recommended me for Ingmar Bergman, that one was the one that I responded to the most. Uh, but mm-hmm. five and a half hours is a lot for anything. And, you know, I, I feel like I should say something here, which is I don't like the idea of viewing difficult films as inherent punishment mm-hmm. um, because I think in doing so, I'm tacitly admitting that some films are hard to watch, are inherently hard to watch, and that I'm, like, gleeful about that. It's And, and, and maybe even a little bit elitist about it sure which is like no film is not art unless it hurts you you know (laughs) it's nothing it's nothing like that it's more just the acknowledgement especially for american audiences but not even that like i'm currently teaching a class of italian students like Mm -hmm. students literally from uh uh, from italy Mm -hmm. uh and they've you know when i ask them their favorite movies the number of them that that mention the fast and furious films Mm -hmm. is surprising Mm -hmm. like as it turns out 
as it turns out, despite regardless of where somebody is from, they're watching American movies. And sure. so like yeah. the, the the American tradition of mainstream filmmaking is international at this point. Of course. And so whereas like these students, they're not watching they're not watching Persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and Persona is, I think, an intellectually invigorating film and from a filmmaking standpoint it is equally so mm-hmm. um but i also recognize that it doesn't fit with the standards of what main what counts as mainstream mm-hmm. and most people whether they acknowledge it or not view view films solely as uh, a source of entertainment sure. and not necessarily challenge or th- or you know a way of provoking thought or discussion or something like that. Yeah. And so when I talk about like like you know screw you kids I'm going to show you this movie or that movie <laughs> yeah. uh that is that is purely a joke. Yes. Um and it's more like it's it's more like the idea of you know, if you're teaching a student to swim and then they get really defiant, there is a temptation to throw them in the deep end and let them get themselves out. Right. Uh, but that is, but to do so is not to suggest that swimming in the deep end is something you yourself view as a negative. Right. You know, so. Well, and, and intellectually, I understand you, but also emotionally, there would be a part of me that if there was just one real shit heel student that I wanted to punish, I'd assign them, I don't know. Antichrist or slow and just have them watch that on their own and see how sure. they enjoyed that. But um, but this is all to say... But what if they came back and they said, like, that's my favorite movie ever? <laughs> it was so erotic. And you're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess there, there'd be some type of health professionals that I'd want them to speak to. First and foremost, yeah. Um, like you don't want to be the you don't want to be the one that gave Mark David Chapman uh, a copy of Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> you know? Right? Yeah. Um, I, I'd hate to be responsible for the guy who was going around killing people by feeding them muffins stuffed full of nails. Is basically <laughs> what I would not want. But um, all this is to say is that I, I'd like to think that being on this podcast has prepared you to be a a, a good teacher. Of course, I'm going to take most credit for that because of um, sure. how you are. Approaching things such as um, what is, as you kind of say, what is indicative, what is um, what what you hope people would appreciate about, and Tyler is is now. I'd I'd have to take count, but I think you're probably the most recurring guest on this on this show at this point. And we are here, of course, talking about British filmmaker Mike Lee. As I said, seems like hours ago, but. a little bit of peek behind the curtain for people who are who are wondering how I may have ended up on Mike Lee. When I was out um, in California recording the, the Battleship Retention episode of the, the New York and L.A. movies, which I hope that you have listened to by now. If you have not, go back. It's a wonderful episode to listen to. Um, I told Tyler that I was uh, I was about to take a, a evening um, grad school summer course at, at NYU, and it was uh, based on my schedule. Um, I was only afforded the opportunity to take two different classes because I had to take them night, and it was a choice between the films of Mike Lee or um, a comparative course between the films of uh, Walt Disney and um, Miyazaki, and I ultimately opted to to uh, take the Miyazaki course, which I think was a wonderful decision. It was an absolutely wonderful course. And Tyler seemed a little bit incredulous at the fact that I that I opted to take that one over the other. So he, I, Yay, cartoons. Oh, boy, cartoons. <laughs> I, first off, I'm joking. Yep. I, did, I bristle when people call them cartoons. Mm-hmm. But I know you, and I know that you're like, oh, fun animals talking and stuff. Oh, boy. <laughs> well... Um, there wasn't a whole lot of fun to be had with Princess Mononoke, I'll tell you that much, but, um... Never actually saw it. It's, uh, incredibly violent, um, 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll, so I'll say that. But uh, anyway, but so uh, I, I figured this would be a you know why not uh, why not double dip? I can take the course on the films of Miyazaki, and I can also take a veritable course on the films of Mike Lee by having Tyler Smith come on and, and talk about it again. So um, let me see, Tyler, Mike Lee, what's what? what's the deal? What's he all about? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so. Mike Lee is one of those filmmakers. He he hasn't really made that many movies. Mm-hmm. Um, like I I was kicking myself. I've in preparation for this. I've only I've only seen six of his movies. But then when I was looking at his filmography, I was like, oh, that's that's not bad, <laughs> really. Um, and uh, and he's a filmmaker. So my favorite movie is Nashville by Robert Altman. Yeah, and. Altman is a director that I think as he got older, um, I think he probably did judge his characters quite a bit. But one of the things that I love about Nashville is that um, I feel no sense of judgment for the characters involved. I I think that they he sees them in their good times and their bad times when they're at their best and when they're at their worst. And which is, you know, I've always approached it as like this this must be the way god looks at people <laughs> where you just see you can see large crowds of them but then you can see the individual stories and you see when they've made mistakes and when they have done really well um and he was also willing to let his characters surprise him mm-hmm. and there are filmmakers like that out there john cassavetes is one of them i think jim jarmusch is one of them even though i think he there's there's a bit more artifice to the way that he makes movies, but I think he himself is willing to just kind of go with the flow of his characters, who they are and what they want to do. And Mike Lee is right up there. He might actually be like smack dab at the top of non-judgmental filmmakers. I think he Hmm. tells stories about characters that he has such tremendous love for. Mm -hmm. Um, And even characters that are not likable. I think he sees them as maybe tragic or he just almost feels like I love this person too much to apologize for them. I love them too much to try to hide who they are. Mm -hmm. This is who they are and they might be making themselves miserable. And that is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, as a result, uh, there are moments of real joy in his films and moments of tremendous humor while also, uh, big moments of discomfort. And there are characters that you will not necessarily enjoy spending time with, but you will nonetheless find them intriguing. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is that I think he, along with loving his characters, I think he is fascinated by humanity. I think he is fascinated by everybody he has ever met. <laughs> um, now one thing that I will say is that this could be a two-parter. Oh. All right. Because I was really torn on which film which three films to pick. Um I basically had it narrowed down to 
like four. Okay. Of the of the six I've seen, I had it narrowed down to four, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, I can either choose, and I knew I was going to pick these two, and then I had to choose between these other two, and I realized like I don't even know how to begin to compare them. <laughs> he mostly makes, I, not not even mostly, he pretty much splits it up himself. He m- will make films about. Work, you know, British modern day working class families as, and and individuals as they struggle to find their place in this world. Mm-hmm. He will also tell period pieces. You know, he will also make period pieces. Yeah. And I have chosen to focus on the modern day working class dramas. Okay. But, and in doing so. I want, I essentially removed Topsy Turvy, mm-hmm. which is my, which is probably my favorite of his films, mm. but, um, but it didn't fit with the other things that I was doing. So I, so I'm leaving that out. And if you wanted to do a follow up in which we talk about his period pieces, fine. Or if you just want to seek those out on your own, I do think t- I will say now that I think Topsy Turvy is an absolute masterpiece. It's one of many amazing films that came out in 1999. Okay. And it is, if you've, if you've ever been part of a creative process or any kind of collaborative creative process, and more specifically, if you've ever been, uh, in the theater in any capacity, then you will see topsy turvy and you will recognize a lot of the, a lot of the people there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and it is just, um, just a really lovely film. And one that has it certainly in, in the way that it looks at, at its characters and the way the characters interact with each other, it definitely feels like Mike Lee. But when you watch the films leading up to it, you're just like, wait, this is the guy who makes movies in an almost cinema verite style mm-hmm. where there's, of course, there's art direction. There's always art direction, but it just takes place in people's houses and stuff. Whereas here it takes place in like the 1800s or maybe the early 1900s uh, in a, in a huge lavish theater. And you're seeing these beautiful costumes and like what on, how, where did he get, how did he get here? <laughs> um, but he, but he, he does so well with it. And the film won several Oscars. I think it won for art direction and costume. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is just a, a wonderful movie. And you know what? It's, I, it's not one of my recommendations, but I guess I snuck it in just now. So <laughs> we don't have to do the two parter. Um, because there is a, there is a film, a, a film called Mr. Turner from 2014. Right. That, uh, is a period film that I actually don't care for that much. Interesting. Um, I might need to rewatch it, but this is one once again, where I don't necessarily blame Mike Lee. It's more just that he's willing to tell, he's willing to engage with a character on that character's terms. And that, and this character is very silent and doesn't give you much. And so you have to just sort of extrapolate things from his actions. And it's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it's so, and it's, and it's actually quite unlike any of his other characters. And so I think if I returned to it, I'd probably have a deeper appreciation for it. But what we're talking about here are three of his like modern day dramas. And many of them have a, a, a quite a bit of comedy in them as well. Well, and I will say, it seems like it's, it's, uh, Maybe a blessing in disguise that Topsy Turvy wasn't recommended because according to JustWatch.com, the only place to stream it is some service called Hoopla that I have, I'm sure I've heard of in the past and have not uh, have no recollection of. But it doesn't really seem to be available anywhere unless I knew someone who had the the disc I, or I wonder. It. 
Because it's available through Criterion, so I wouldn't be surprised if the Criterion uh, channel had it if you have that. Which, unfortunately, um, I do not. Um, mm. And I, I was I was trying to talk uh, David Bax into um, that being part of our next wager, where if uh, he lost, he would have to pay for my Criterion subscription, and he uh, he was not enthusiastic about that idea. <laughs> well, he's not enthusiastic about much. <laughs> um but uh, I but I will say that so, um, Mr. Turner is is on a list of, of films I will see eventually. My fiance and I have kind of a shared list of movies we would like to watch together. Whether it's one of us showing um, something that we love to the other person, or vice versa, or just movies that we uh, have seen but a long time ago. And Mr. Turner was on there because of a trip we made to the American Museum of Natural History. Was it the American Museum sure. of Natural History or the Metropolitan? Uh, it, it was a it was a museum that we went through, and we were going through uh, a lot of the uh, painting sections, and um, a lot of the stuff from uh, JMW Turner was the stuff that I that mm-hmm. I personally kind of had a, a lot more. Um, I don't want to say enjoyment of because it was a quite enjoyable and edifying experience, but his was the stuff that I'm like I really like these kind of stuff, and I know that this is uh, a movie uh, about his life. So Mr. Turner is on that list of movies I will eventually get around to. That though maybe I'll, I'll bump it up the list just because of um, it seems more relevant to this topic that we're talking about right now because it is of course directed by Mike Lee. So okay, we will start with. Um the 1993 film. Well, have you seen any of his movies? I now here was the thing because I remember when I was talking to you, um, and I'm a little bit embarrassed by that. I, I was uh, Tyler had asked me like, "Well, have you seen anything from Mike Lee?" I'm like, "Yeah, I saw." Um, not realizing I was talking about um, the Big Lebowski. I was like, "Yeah, I saw that one where um, uh, David Thewlis was a, a nihilist," and it was like, "Oh no, that was uh, the Big Lebowski." But I knew that David Thewlis has worked. <laughs> With uh, with Mike Lee before, so and, and then and then I'm like, yeah. well, and th- and then you said, well, like, no, well, <laughs> David Thewlis isn't naked, but no, he does not play a nihilist in that film. Well, he's kind of nihilistic. So, have you seen? So you have not seen Naked, or you have? I, I have not. I have looking at his resume now. I have seen literally nothing from uh, from Mike Lee. Okay, so we are going to start with the 1993 film Naked, and this is. You know, in a way, this is uh, this could be seen as Mike Lee's Taxi Driver. Um, You know, where we have a misanthropic young man played by David Thewlis. The character's name is Johnny, and there isn't a great. This is not a a plot uh, oriented film. It's mostly about character, and the character himself is quite unpleasant. (laughs) He and he is constantly talking, (laughs) and it is. It and I think David Thewlis is a is a marvelous actor. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is, when he is playing a character that is unpleasant, you will not find a more unpleasant character. Mm. Um, there is just something about the way he carries himself and his voice when he is turning it to evil. It's just like I cannot stand this person. <laughs> um, I remember whether it be the the villain in Dragonheart. That's that might be my first yeah, exposure oh, that, to him. That was mine as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the uh, he plays he does the voice of the earthworm I think in James and the Giant Peach, oh. uh, like and then of course in Big Lebowski, uh, he's not one of the nihilists. He's the video artist Knox Harrington. Okay. He's in one scene, and he's like giggling like a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. And and so like he he plays like annoying, not merely annoying but like just grating really really well. 
But at the same time, he can also turn around and play my favorite character of the Harry Potter series, Professor Lupin, of course. and play him as a man with tremendous heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in a film called An Inspector Calls, uh, playing the the titular yep. the inspector. Adaptation and of a, a British stage play, which I got to see yes. in London, which was wonderful. Yeah, it's... You know, they also could have just called it Guilt Trip, because uh, that's pretty much what that play is. I still like it, but it's just like, okay, yeah, this one's lying it on pretty thick. Um, but yeah, it, like David Thewlis is just, and and then he was uh, he was in Wonder Woman, uh, playing that's right, yeah. a, a mentor type character who's eventually revealed to be the villain, and I think he does he does both of those quite well. Yeah, um, he's a very he's a very versatile actor. Um, you know, I've never really heard him do any. I don't think he can do like different accents. I've only ever heard him be British. Yep. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad actor because just within the types of characters he plays, he's remarkably versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd worked with Mike Lee before. He was in a movie called Life Is Sweet, which is not one of the films that we're, we'll be talking about today, but it is a marvelous movie. Um, but yeah, in Naked, I don't really have much to say because to talk about the movie is to talk about the character of Johnny. Mm-hmm. And he is in the same tradition as um, Richard E. Grant's character from With Nail and I. He's he's in the same tradition as um, the character Teach in American Buffalo. And again, Travis Bickle. He's not... Or, or, you know, along those lines, you know, Rorschach from Watchmen, just the person who has a running commentary on the world, mm-hmm. um, usually uh, angry young men mm-hmm. whose life has not gone the way they wanted it to. Um, and not to imply that they feel entitled. It's more just that, like, life turned out to be harder than they thought it was going to. Mm-hmm. And rather than acknowledge that, that it's like that for everybody... Uh, they instead just sort of rage against the world, um, kind of that angry young man type thing. But in this case, it's a young man who is incredibly well spoken, mm-hmm. um, but he is also tremendously full of shit uh, <laughs> a good portion of the time. And so, just watching him go around and like, and he's also—I mean, he he mistreats people, he abuses people. All because he just feels it's almost like, okay, well, it's me against the world. The world obviously has the advantage. So I'm going to take my swipes where I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it is it is not the most pleasant film to watch, but it is, again, nonetheless intriguing. Mike Lee does not go out of his way to find moments of of unnatural likability in the character. I think he find he sees that if anything, he sees it almost like a dad whose whose son is rebelling, mm-hmm. which is like he is so smart, he is so talented. If only he could change his attitude, he could actually contribute quite a lot to the world. Mm-hmm. Um he just needs to get out of this phase. And I think you could say that Johnny is in a phase. Of course, the phase is quite destructive, not merely of himself, but of the rest of the world. Sure. Um, and so I don't mean to minimize the way he treats people in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, if you've read uh, the book A Clockwork Orange, yes. you know that the last section, which was omitted from the, the film and yep. omitted from, I think, American translations. It's not a translation. American versions. That's kind of a translation. But, um, With that book, yes, it is, is translations. 
you know, Alex essentially, I mean, he's a, a an absolute monster. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he kind of grows out of it, mm-hmm. you know, which is a weird, it's such a weird thing. And it doesn't mean he shouldn't be held responsible for his actions. But, um, but it definitely, uh, we don't really see Johnny grow out of it, but we kind of get that sense that he's in the midst of his like frustration, mm-hmm. the the frustration phase. And you almost, I, you know, I, Mike Lee's not the type that makes sequels, but I almost wish that he'd made a sequel to Naked, um, where we see um, where Johnny ended up. Um, so, I mean, in, in some ways, you could say he's he's kind of influenced by Ferris Bueller, like a guy who also doesn't think the rules really apply to him and all that. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot going on with the character. And, and, and again, Mike Lee's refusal to hide how unpleasant the character can be, but also his refusal. I I genuinely, I think he judges the character's viewpoints and his actions, but I think he sees the, the person committing those, committing those, uh, I won't necessarily say crimes, but just, you know, those maybe moral crimes, Mm -hmm. um, sin, I guess sins is what you'd call that. Uh, the man committing (laughs) these, these social and relational sins, um, I think he he he's pulling for him. He's like, I really want him to get past this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that's just my interpretation. I, I think there are some people that would watch the film and just see Johnny as 100% irredeemable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I don't see it that way. I don't think he is redeemed necessarily in the film. Right. But that's not to. But I but I think, you know, it's a character that you can imagine. Like I just said, I I I would love to see a sequel. He's a character that you can imagine going on after the movie is over. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, you can imagine that this is not a guy who is beyond redemption. Right. Uh, He doesn't necessarily get it in this movie, but that doesn't mean he is not able. He he won't get it. And it's like, well, this is just a character in a two hour movie. Once the movie's over, he's gone. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, that's not that. That isn't really how Mike Lee characters feel. Mm -hmm. Um, They feel so lived in that you can absolutely believe they will continue after the movie is over. Mm-hmm. So that's the first film is naked. Right. And, and I'm, and I'm so based on your description and I'm looking at the, the summary uh, of it on IMDB and it, it does seem like based on, uh, once again, as I said, in your description, the people he seems to be hurting are specifically women. So yeah, when, when it comes to that, I, I guess, I mean, cause I know that there's, you know, we, this is one of the wonders of art is, you know, we'll watch something like Scarface and we'll root for Scarface, even though he is a, an irredeemable and an unrepentant murderer, thief, yeah. coke fiend, all sorts of that stuff. But in when it comes to these <laughs> moral crimes or sins, especially when it comes to something which is dealing with inequity and uh, a film made by a man about a man who is being abusive towards women, it's not even a matter of how do yeah. you respond to the idea of like not even is he irredeemable or not, but why should we care if he is redeemed or not, I guess? Because if he can be, so can we. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it, which is you can a person, a director or an audience member, they can judge actions. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think that's perfectly fine. And I think, and if somebody needs to be punished in some way for those actions. And it's like, well, we owe it to the person that the the people that they've hurt, Mm -hmm. uh, to punish that person and to bring about, uh, some, some degree of justice. But at the same time, for me, 
like I, I think I have to believe that these characters that are so irritating, again, I, we're not necessarily talking about like rapists and murderers. Sure. Uh, but again, you hear about these tales about like these guys who did terrible things when they were younger, they went to jail and jail was uh, the best place for them <laughs> in many ways. And they would, and they acknowledge that as well. Um, so, uh, it, it is that idea that like you, for myself, I have not behaved the way Johnny behaves. Mm-hmm. I have behaved in in, deg- in negative ways, in like a, in different genres of behavior, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this idea that like, for the same reason, in my opinion, that people really respond to a movie like Raging Bull, mm-hmm. which is a movie I have a really hard time watching because I feel like I'm just watching total, just complete animals. Yeah. And so you could you could a view it as a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. And just see, like, all right, well, uh, this is a nice little template of how I shouldn't behave. (laughs) But I do also think it's like, yeah, if we don't engage with the negative aspects of human behavior (laughs) and root for it to get better, root for, you know, if, if we have no sense of if we are if we're not rooting for somebody's redemption if we have no sense of forgiveness for them in our heart or at least a desire to forgive them should they ever seek it um i do think that it's we can make ourselves miserable and it's and it really is a recipe to honestly become like johnny johnny is a very unforgiving Mm -hmm. person yeah you know, and in his and of course, for him, it's mostly women. He's one of many, you know, again, that template of like the angry young man who just things didn't go his way. And so he's taking it out on whoever he whoever he views as having wronged him. And this in this case is like, you know, all of womankind. But again, the larger society in general. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, that this is a long answer to your question, but it's it's ultimately for me this idea that like when you start just condemning a person and saying they can't be redeemed Mm -hmm. and I don't want them to be because if they're redeemed, then that means that I can't continue to hate them for what they've done. And, you know, and just partially because of my own personal beliefs, but also I think just in general, I think looking for like wanting to find the best in people and hoping that someone who is in a pattern of terrible behavior can come out of that and hopefully, hopefully make some kind of restitution to the people that they've hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is, I think something that we should be rooting for. And so that's, so yeah, that's, and this is the type of conversation that can be had out of a film like yeah, naked. Of course. Um, because we are, we are watching somebody that again, we do not, we are not really on board with, and yet we're stuck with. Right. So, and then, so a couple of questions about Mike Lee in general before we sort of move into the next uh, specific film. But you you talk about how in this film specifically, you you we see Mike Lee as judging certain behaviors and, and, and actions he does. As a director, mm-hmm. how do you see him doing that? What is it about Mike Lee as like whether how he uses the camera or how he or how he directs, which is like we we get that clear authorial voice of what he is trying to say through something. I think there's in this way he reminds me of of Altman. I think he is I think he's perfectly okay to keep his camera at a distance. He's not opposed to close-ups and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But I think he likes to turn essentially like he turns on the camera, sets it down and then lets the world happen in front of him. Mm-hmm. You know, he is not there aren't a lot of like crazy edits. Um his films would not be 
you know, probably would not be viewed as like uh, masterworks of cinematography, not to impl- imply they're shot poorly, mm-hmm. but compared to, you know, in some case, like the films of, of Martin Scorsese, who has a very active camera. Yes. Um, I feel like Mike Lee is not that. So there is always an attitude of he is simply watching. And when you're wa- pardon me, in your when you're watching, admittedly you you wind up leaving a lot to your audience. So it could be that I'm judging this character's actions while also uh, hoping that he is able to move past them. Okay. Um, but that's the thing is when you have a, a camera that isn't remarkably active, it also is not. Um, editorializing and there there could be a way to fetishize somebody's negative behavior mm-hmm. or there could be a way to just condemn them like you could shoot them in really grotesque close-ups to make them look as inherently unlikable and animalist animalistic as possible um, but at the same time if you move your camera too far away then we're not involved at all. And so I think he keeps his camera at a distance and the way that he edits, it, it has an almost clinical feel to it. Um, but again, to speak in the, in, to speak in God terms, it's the idea. It's like watching at a remove, but we just keep following this person. Mm -hmm. So we are invested, but we're not like right in the thick of it. You know, that's not really how he, how he makes his film. So I think by trying to remain objective, it allows us to read into things, but I think it also it allows the sins and the and the potential, uh, the possibility of redemption to be equally presented. Mm-hmm. And then and so that actually ties into the next question very nicely, which is the sense of you you talk about how Mike Lee and the camera just sort of watches, and that seems to tie into the fact that it's no secret that a lot of Mike Lee's films are, there's a very improvisational, not even feel, but a lot of things are improvised while they're shooting. And, and the, the the joke that I've read is like, oh, but this guy has been nominated for Best Screenplay so many times when, yeah. a, when a lot of his films are not completely improvised, but there is an on-the-fly yeah. quality of it. So uh, I guess th- there's not even a question in there, I, I guess, as much as um, th- I just found it, that, find it, it interesting. Does... It does definitely address part of his filmmaking style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, uh, you know, and, and this speaks, by the way, to the big difference between his period pieces and his modern day films. Topsy Turvy, there are improvisational elements to it, certainly. But in films like Vera Drake and Mr. Turner, there there's improvisation, but it's a very specific type of language. You know, you can't, it's hard to improvise in an older <laughs> dialect, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so those films feel much more structured and much more controlled, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the films that, that we're, that we're talking about today, which do feel improvisational. Um, and, and they often are. Uh, and so the question then is as a writer, like what role does he play? And I think it, ha- I think it's very much, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's, quite to the level of Kirby enthusiasm. I think he knows what, who each character is. And I think he's sketched them out pretty specifically, mm-hmm. probably working with the actor, but he has a very clear idea. I think he probably has a very clear idea of when the actor has gone wrong, mm. uh, in their improvisation. He's like, no, that doesn't really fit. We're going to go back over here. Um, and then also, uh, he has an idea of where he wants the film to end up. Um, and then an, an argument could be made in an almost Terrence Malick sense that he's 
he's writing through what he is choosing to include and choosing to leave out of those improvisational sessions. Sure. Um, as far as the Oscars nominating him for screenplay, I think so much of it boils down to the Oscars want to nominate him for something. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and yeah, he's been nominated for director a few times, but I think it's, it's one of those things where his films, they just feel like they're well directed, but you can't really nominate them for cinematography, not really for editing either. Sure. So what, what do you have? Well, the actors certainly, but then also, uh, the screenplay or more specifically in this case, you could almost say he's nominated for best story and characters. <laughs> sure. Um, and granted, the characters that he creates are very, very strong and very powerful. And the stories that and, you know, the character arcs and the stories that he's created are very powerful. Mm -hmm. And so um, so I think you can look at it that way. But I think he's somebody who values the input of his actors, which is something you need to do if you're going to be as improvisational as he is, uh, which is why he tends to work with the same actors over and over again. Cause I think eventually they understand what he wants out of them and he understands how they work. So if you're going to like really craft a character and craft a narrative, it's best to have people around who you trust. Yeah. And, and, and I could see that being a style that um, even some great actors are just not, good at and just don't uh, appeal like I, i'm i'm trying i'm trying to uh you know i'm trying to picture maybe jack nicholson in, in, in a mike lee film and i can't imagine that working out very well um but maybe not but you but at the same time you never know um <laughs> that's like true. some actors in the same way that like there are actors lining up and pounding you know banging down the door to work with terrence malick and i think because it gives them a great deal of freedom to experiment mm -hmm. um but Nicholson, there's a certain classic quality to him as an actor, and so I'm I'm not sure if he would work that great with with Lee. But you you, you never really know. Yeah. So all right, next up is the 1996 film Secrets and Lies, which is probably to the degree that any film of Mike Lee can be considered high profile. This is probably his highest profile film. Okay. Um, it was nominated for best picture actress, supporting actress, a, a bunch of stuff. It got a lot of awards support and a lot of critical support as it should have. It is a wonderful film, incredibly touching. Um, this is much, much more of an ensemble. Um, naked is in my opinion, kind of an outlier. Um, because that is so much about one guy, um, whereas the rest of his movies, with the possible exception of Mr. Turner, I feel like it'd be interesting to watch Mr. Turner and Naked uh, one right after another because they're both about these kind of misanthropic guys <laughs> who don't really have a, a high opinion of the world. One of them can't stop talking and the other one never talks. Um <laughs> But anyway, uh, so Secrets and Lies is it has a great cast, um, and there is Brenda Blethyn is officially the lead, mm -hmm. um, but again, this is very ensemble based. Timothy Spall is 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 in it, and then Marianne John Baptiste, um, she could be. I think she was she was up for supporting. I, I think it's safe to say she's a co-lead. A co okay. Um, 
Uh, yeah, she was nominated for supporting. Yep. Um, but I, I, I definitely see this as kind of a two-hander uh, between Brenda Bleth and, and Marianne Jean-Baptiste. Um, and it's ultimately just this, again, this working-class family that is just trying to make their way in the world. And then this this uh, young woman who's, I would say, African-American, except she's not American. Mm-hmm. Um, so this young black woman, um, she was adopted, and she goes looking for her birth mother only to find that her birth mother is white. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to know each other and, and they kind of discover that, you know, in a way it's not that Marion Jean Baptiste is thinking like, Oh, I'm glad they gave me up. It's not so much that as it is. She's like, okay, yeah, these people, <laughs> Even when they clearly felt they were ready to have kids, they weren't really ready to have kids, you know. (laughs) And so and this speaks to what I'm saying that, like, there's a lot of dysfunction in the film, but also a lot of humor Mm -hmm. and a real sense of, I think, optimism Mm -hmm. Um, and this idea that so many of these characters, they are really longing for a relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're really, I think, even even though they have tremendous affection for one another, I think they often feel very lonely Mm -hmm. Um, and partially because by, by their own making, like they're not sharing what they're feeling or what their history is with the rest of even their own family. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's a really, it's just a very special film. Um, You know, besides topsy turvy, I think probably secrets and lies is my second favorite uh, Mike Lee film. And, uh, And I will say that the character of Brenda Blethyn, like she is one thing that that can be said about Mike Lee's films is that even though they have an improvisational quality and even though his films uh, would appear to be about just regular people, like he creates characters that stay with you. Johnny, whether you want him to or not, stays with you. Mm -hmm. And the character of um, Cynthia is... She she has a very she has kind of a high pitched voice Mm -hmm. and she clearly indulges in self-pity like a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And and she has a a bit of a martyr complex. And so in many ways, she's kind of like that standard, like middle aged mom who is like, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just so terrible and stuff like that. but again, her voice is also kind of high pitched and she and the character is not particularly educated. And you get the impression she probably isn't that bright, <laughs> um, but she has a good heart and she wants to do what's right. She wants to she wants to be loved by people. And I think she wants to show other people love. And it is uh, a really I wouldn't say that the film is at all a tearjerker. It's possible you you would well up, but it's not that type of drama, even though there are high emotions going on. Mm-hmm. And it is just a very, a very touching film. And uh, I'm excited for you to watch it with uh, with with the the Coley's, as you say, kind of also as a. Uh, different ethnicities mm-hmm. is, is there does the film delve into that in the sense of like the not a, not a racial tension but just the differences in in, in this society or this atmosphere or is it just kind of like a well it does partially because uh the marianne jean baptiste character is 
has done quite well for herself. Mm-hmm. She's actually, she's smarter, she's better educated, and I think she's higher class. Mm-hmm. So for her, to, so obviously there's there's like a racial element, but there's also a class element, an educational element. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff that the stuff that separates these characters isn't simply the color of their skin. It's it's their entire lives, mm-hmm. honestly, and and their outlook. You know. Um, but what I what I really like is that um, both characters, when they when they first meet, and I will say this that uh, from an improvisation standpoint, Mike Lee kept these two actresses apart mm-hmm. uh, and filmed them separately, oh, wow, okay. and then and then he did not tell Brenda Blethyn that in the scene where like, Oh, you're going to meet your, the daughter you gave away for adoption. He did not tell her she was black. Mm. And so the act, the, the character's reaction is the actress's reaction. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's, she's in character obviously. And it's like, okay, well, how would Cynthia respond to this? Um, but I think he really wanted the, he really wanted it to be a shock to the system for, for these, for both of these characters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it really comes through. And so, like I said, they're pretty much, they're pretty much co-leads. Um, but certainly as far as the Oscars go, they like to split things up where they can. They don't like to have two actors or actresses, uh, in the lead category. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that as, as much as I really love the Marianne Jean Baptiste character because she is genuinely decent and you really are rooting for her. And she's, what's interesting is she's actually kind of our entry point Mm -hmm. into the world of the rest of these characters. Because frankly, if you're, if you're watching a Mike Lee film, Mm -hmm. you probably have a lot more in common with Marianne Jean Baptiste than you do Brenda Blethyn's character. Sure. That's not to say that working class people cannot enjoy quality film. It's mm-hmm. nothing like that. But um, the audience that Mike Lee appeals to is a more well-to-do audience, and right. so um, so there's a, a a heavy amount of uh, just observing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the way Cynthia operates. But uh, so as much as I do like. Again, the the Marianne Jean Baptiste character, whose uh, the character's name is Hortense. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I really like her character, the character you come away thinking of is Cynthia. So I wonder if if in the minds of audience of critics, audiences, um, and the Academy, I wonder if they're like, well, she's the one we remember. Mm-hmm. Um, Sort of, you know, in the way of like Carol, the the movie Carol from a few years ago. Sure. Um, that's definitely we have two leads, and actually, if pressed, I would say that um, that the character of Carol is the supporting character. <laughs> um, but she's but she definitely makes I think she makes more of an impression because of mannerisms and that sort of thing. So that's yeah. so that's our lead. <clears throat> uh, same with same with Training Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, so Secrets and Lies is just a marvelous movie, and I can't wait for you to watch it. Well, and, and the discussion of this is, is making me realize sort of how uh, how maybe progressive uh, the producer David Heyman was, because David Heyman, for listeners who, who may not know, is the, the big producer behind the Harry Potter franchise. So when they're trying to make The Prisoner of Azkaban, and he's like, hey, Timothy Spall from this Mike Lee film. Hey, David Thewlis from this yeah. Mike Lee film. Hey, 
um, Alfonso Cuaron, who previously, whose his previous film was E2 Mama Tambien. Like, wow, okay, yeah. and it all works together so phenomenally in that film. It's it's actually. Um, as much as I already loved The Prisoner of Azkaban, it's, it's making me retroactively love that film even more. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, at the same time, you don't want to give him too much credit because when it comes right down to it, it's like, are you a British character actor? <laughs> I've got good news for you. Yeah. You are going to play a teacher. You might... Uh, you might have malicious intent. Um, it's also true, but, uh, but, and even if you don't, you're probably going to be a little creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, cause, uh, a frequent, um, not in this film, but a frequent collaborator with, um, Mike Lee was Jim Broadbent. So, and he, uh, he yeah. joined the Harry Potter cast eventually as of well. Of course. Yeah. Um, okay. So the last film, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to jump ahead 12 years. Oh boy. The last film is Happy Go Lucky. Oh, with Sally Hawkins. Um, with Sally Hawkins. It's the film that introduced me to Sally Hawkins. Okay. Um, and once again, this is this is a character that's going to stick with you. Okay. Um, the character's name is appropriately Poppy um, <laughs> because she's a, a, a teacher for young children, and that seems to have affected her. Uh, she is... Upbeat, always optimistic, high energy, often quite annoying, um, <laughs> but in a way that you're like, ah, how can I stay mad at you? In many ways, she's she's the opposite of Johnny, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, her outlook on life is one that, in a way, I wish that I had. Um, but that's the thing is she's she's very clearly the lead, mm-hmm. but there is a character named Scott played by Eddie Marsan, who's been in a, a million things. Yep. Um, you'd know, you know, you'll know him with, when you see him. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an ensemble, but sh- the, it's basically about these two characters. Um, but it's not co it's not a co-lead situation. He's definitely supporting. She's definitely lead. And he is essentially, she's learning to drive later in life and he is her driving instructor and he is bitter. He is angry <laughs> You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about Naked is because of, like, I definitely knew I wanted to talk about Naked and Happy Go Lucky because they seem so opposite in many ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, except that there is no Poppy-type character in Naked, (laughs) but there is a Johnny-type character in Happy Go Lucky, which is is the Scott Scott character. Mm -hmm. And he's just so bitter and frustrated, and as you watch the film and you see these two interact, you know, when you're me, you think like, Oh man, Poppy is so annoyingly upbeat. But then you see Scott and you're like, good Lord, I'd much, I'd, I'd much rather be her than him. (laughs) And when it comes right down to it, not only am I way more him than her, I think most people are, Mm -hmm. I think way more people, I think people are jaded. I think they, I, I think whether we know it or not, we look at that as a way to shield ourselves from hurt um, and sort of inoculate ourselves from from past hurt. Mm-hmm. And but the thing is, he's he's not his bitterness <clears throat> doesn't become a callousness because that suggests like a certain apathy towards the rest of the world. He's angry. Mm-hmm. He is angry 
angry at the world. And he's just, and it's an anger that, you know, in 2008, but certainly now I feel like it's an anger anybody can, can, resp- can understand. Mm-hmm. You look at the world around you, you see the injustice and you think what on earth, why, why is anybody not angry? It's that idea. Like if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. That definitely seems to be his attitude. But what I really like is that there are moments where as a teacher, she is faced with, um, with some negative experiences where, you know, one, uh, this, this spoil, it's not a spoiler. It's not that kind of movie, but it's, it's a really powerful scene where, um, there's a kid that, uh, is bullying another kid. And so she obviously she needs to separate them. And then she obviously tries to take, she needs to take care of the kid that has been bullied, but then she also doesn't, she doesn't dismiss the bully out of hand. She realizes that like when a kid is that young for him to be bullying, there's gotta be something going on. Mm-hmm. So she, uh, she like asks him what's going on. She tries to be supportive and then she discovers that there's like some rough stuff going on at home. And so she, she tries to be supportive of that. And I don't remember if the kid himself is being abused by like his father or mother. I don't remember if it's that or if it's just a bad situation in general, but either way, she's able to get to the bottom of it precisely because she is not ruled by anger. Mm. She is not ruled by this sense of injustice, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's nothing wrong with, with, with being passionate about injustice, but you know, you find yourself wondering if Scott were in this position Mm -hmm. and he saw a kid being bullied, he would probably have a good heart for the kid, for the the victim, Mm -hmm. but he have nothing but condemnation for the kid doing the bullying. Yeah. Um, he would not care what is going on in the kid's home. All he would see is that this is unacceptable and you are out of this school. Like I'm getting you out of like not addressing the situation, mm-hmm. not addressing any kind of deeper problems, only looking at the surface and seeing this is not fair. And I, and just, and responding with a knee jerk kind of anger. And so, you know, looking at that, I feel like, and, and seeing the dichotomy, I think you're able to see maybe Mike Lee's attitude, maybe even going back as far as naked, this idea that yes, we can absolutely be furious, genuinely, righteously furious at the way people treat the negative way people treat other people. But in the end, like you, and you can deal with that and you should deal with that. But at what point are you simply dealing with the symptoms? And at what point do you want to go deeper and look at the disease? You Mm -hmm. know, Poppy, because she wants to think well of people, if somebody is not acting in a way that she thinks is good, Mm -hmm. She's like, well, there must be something there. Mm-hmm. There must be some reason. And people might just be assholes. Who knows? <laughs> but she uh, she refused to, refuses to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's a – if you look at these three films, I think you also have a pretty good sense of how Mike Lee looks at the world or tries to look at the world. I think – honestly, I don't think you come up with a character like Scott if you don't sympathize – if you don't empathize with him. Mm-hmm. I think Mike Lee probably empathizes with him a fair amount and wishes he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is uh, two great performances, by the way. I remember really wishing that Sally Hawkins would have been nominated for supporting act- – for, for lead actress that year. She was up for a Golden Globe, uh, but she wasn't for the Oscar, and that bummed me out because I thought, like, it's a, it's a performance that deserves to be. Mm-hmm. But also I was worried that, like, well, this unknown British actress, like – 
if she doesn't get a nomination out of this, like she might just kind of fall into obscurity. And so like a few years later, she, she played like a one scene character in an education, which is a wonderful film and she's good in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then a couple years later, she was in blue Jasmine and nominated for blue Jasmine. Mm -hmm. And then of course she was in, uh, Paddington and then she was in The Shape of Water. So I'm very glad that her career has taken off and that everybody realizes what a marvelous actress she is. Mm. And if you are a fan of, of Sally Hawkins, I would encourage you, not just you, but the listener as well, to go back and watch Happy Go Lucky because it is a really wonderful performance. Um, Tyler, without looking at anything, can you uh, recall or guess who did win the uh, Oscar for Best Actress that year that Happy Go Lucky came out? Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet for the reader. Um, yeah. The story that doesn't want you to judge someone who was complacent in, in the Holocaust because she couldn't read. And, oh, that's a, such a bummer for her. Yeah. But Oh, but let's not forget how she uh, is a complete predator towards a young boy. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's also <laughs> now, the, now. Yeah, there's also yeah. the statutory rape element of it, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I am curious of, of um, uh, a, a larger question than just uh dealing with this movie but when it comes to objectivity um and, and we, we've talked a lot about in this in this podcast episode of an objective viewpoint that you know where someone just kind of has the camera go and the film just kind of watches these people yeah i would say you know what i've used the word objective what i would say is the way i would approach the way the the way i would describe um mike lee's approach is objective but invested okay all right he's not some scientist studying human behavior and being like oh that's very there's no it doesn't his films don't feel clinical mm -hmm. he feels like he is like he has a vested interest in what's happening but i think he also is like he goes but i don't want to jump to conclusions too quick mm -hmm. you know so i think he tries to stay objective and i think the camera really reflects that but that's not to suggest that these are films that are emotionally uninvolved right well and, and yeah though that is important to differentiate those two things objectivity versus not being involved but then i guess in in your opinion um is there a, a danger or a hindrance to a film being objective because i'm just i'm thinking of um you know because objectivity also seems to maybe imply too that like the filmmaker doesn't want you to feel one way or another but then you potentially get the situation of two different people watching the same film and they have two wildly different interpretations do you do you see yeah. that personally as like that's a beautiful thing or that's a troublesome thing or just like eh, that's just how it is basically uh, I would say that he's somebody who – I think he trusts the audience. Mm -hmm. I think he trusts that the audience has a moral compass right. and will look at when a character does something wrong or hurts another character, not just physically but like emotionally, mm -hmm. when they say something or do something hurtful. I think he trusts that the audience will be able to acknowledge whether the character does or not that what they've, what they've just seen is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you could, you could underscore it with music. You could have a smash cut to something or a whip pan. You can have like these really heightened filmmaking techniques right. and there's nothing wrong with that, but you could do that. But what that really, that says like to the audience, this is bad. <laughs> but I think he's like, I'm making, he's like, I'm making movies for adults mm -hmm. who have, some sense of morality. And if there's ever a moment where maybe Johnny says something that one person could view as really horrendous and the other views as not that bad, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well then that's a conversation they're going to have to have. Right. But I'm not going to hold their hand and walk them through it, especially because 
these are not, you know, I'm not making movies for children. Yeah. So I think I definitely prefer, I don't get me wrong. I'm perfectly fine with, with a film that is with a director and a camera that is actively involved in the action. Some of my favorite movies definitely have that quality to them, but in, but I don't require that a director do that. If a director feels like he wants to try and stay objective, Mm -hmm. not because he doesn't care, Mm -hmm. but because he trusts me, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay. Um, uh, another question I have before we sort of start wrapping up is specific to Eddie Marsden, the actor. Um, my first mm-hmm. exposure to him, I, I believe, might have actually been the uh, the Red Riding trilogy from 2009, I think 2010. Um, right. And and then also uh, his 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 biggest exposure probably to American audience is probably arguably uh, the Edgar Wright film At World's End, in which he is absolutely delightful in, in that movie as well. Yeah. Um, if he was also he was the the villain in Hitchcock, but there's not much to his character. Um, I, I no, is it Hitchcock? Hancock, pardon me, Hancock, um, uh, with Will Smith. Yeah, he's I, the I, villain in that. I remember seeing it and then forgetting about it for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, probably until I mentioned it. Uh, that's kind of <laughs> how Hancock that, works. That is true. Um, and then I and he also plays Inspector Lestrade in the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Sherlock Holmes films. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, may, maybe. So, yeah. Maybe it's just but, of all those that that was my favorite one of of his roles was uh, at World's End. But well, and and that's the thing is like I hate to say it, but there's not much for for Lestrade to do <laughs> yeah. uh, in those movies. And uh, yeah, and that's and it's one of the things that I like about. Mike Lee and directors like Mike Lee is they take these actors that you've probably seen a million times before Mm. and would see many times since and really lets, gives them a role that they can really sink their teeth into. Um, you know, Eddie Marson gets to do more with the role of Scott than he's gotten to do with maybe all of his other roles combined. (laughs) Um, I'm painting with a broad brush there, but he's, he's very much an actor that's considered like that guy Mm -hmm. where his, his roles, are officially supporting, but you would think of them more as like third or fourth tier characters. Here, Scott is a full-blown supporting character with like really, you know, really juicy scenes that he can play. And so, and it's the same with somebody like a Brenda Blethyn who'd been bouncing around for a while and just, and, and then giving kind of exposing audiences to somebody like a Jim Broadbent or a Timothy Spall so that when the time comes to, uh, make these Harry Potter movies, um, <laughs> you know, we, we can, th- these, these actors are more in the minds of, of the producers when, the, when it comes time to cast. Well, and, and that's where it comes in is, uh, since you used to do this in Battleship Retention, I'm not sure if you still do anymore, but you used to do the fantasy casting for certain movies that yeah. have already come out. And, and if you were going to recast, who would it be? So, Thinking about the Harry Potter franchise, if okay. you, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna break the rules a little bit, but if you were going to put Eddie Marsden in the Harry Potter franchise, what role would you put him in? I, I know what I would that do, is, but I, that's a good question. Uh, and I think the thing is, like when I think of him, I think of him first and foremost mm-hmm. as Scott from Happy Go Lucky. Like that's how indelible that character is for me. Mm-hmm. So I, so I think of him as a guy as like a little bundle of energy, you know, <laughs> um, of, of angry energy. Right. Um, and so like on one hand, I feel like he could be a really good, uh, filch. That's what, that was, um, that was the first thing that came to mind for me too. It was Argus okay. Filch. Um, but I think he, I think he could probably play any number of, 
of characters, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, I mean, physically, he's like a shorter guy. He's kind of, I wouldn't say, I certainly wouldn't say fat, um, but he's not thin either. So I'd say he's kind of a stocky guy. Yep. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but he could play any number of characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ar- Argus Filch was the first one I thought of, and then I thought maybe Cornelius Fudge, uh, second one below that. But I think Argus Filch is the, the, the top one for yeah. me. But all right. So as a as a, a recap, we've got uh, Naked, we've got Secrets and Lies, not to be confused with Cries and Whispers. Which in my mind, I was trying to think of a joke where I could do Secrets and Lies and Cries and Whispers, but nothing came to it. So uh, nothing. Yeah. No, that's. I mean, because there was a there was a. a uh, what is that? A uh, polyamorous uh, film called Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. So you can do that. <laughs> right. Like you can make it with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Happy Go Lucky, uh, wrapping it all up. So um, Tyler, um, you if... could do. Oh, hang on. Okay, you could do Uh-oh. Cries and Whispers and Secrets and Lies and Crimes and Misdemeanors. Like you could, <laughs> you could really draw it out. And then you know what? Why not just add and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice? Like <laughs> and, and just the... you and... could just make. And the dying girl. And the, <laughs> and then that's pretty much where it ends, is that movie uh, ends any number of things. But, uh, but yeah, that could be a fun, you know, people talk about, like, the build a title. Like, mm-hmm. if you get movies that have, like, two, um, like, two things with an ampersand, love and friendship is another one. Yeah. Love and mercy is another one. And then just start and just link them all together. Uh, that would be a lot of fun. Or we, we could even do... Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Secrets and Lies and Crimes. And <laughs> this is just long-winded. But, all right, so, Tyler, if, uh, if for some reason people still at this point have never heard of you before, or they just need to be reminded, where, where, can, where can people find you and, and, and the things you do on the Internet? You can go back to battleshippretension.com and you can listen to the podcast, Battleship Pretension, which has been running for 12 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um uh, there are also several reviews uh, on that site, including at this point, probably the most recent review of mine is of The Lion King, mm. which is a film that I think at this point I would say I hate. Um, <laughs> and that's not a word I use lightly. Sure. Um, but uh, and I hate it all the way down to its bones. Like its concept is one that I hate. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh so yeah, you can you can find that at battleshippretension.com. I have another podcast that has been on hiatus for quite a while at this point called More Than One Lesson, but mm-hmm. it is still available. Um, so you can go there and read reviews and listen to other podcasts. Um, but I think that's uh, I think that's about it. Okay, and um, of course, listeners, you can find uh, this podcast, I Do Movies Badly, at battleshippretension.com. If you go to the podcast drop-down menu, um, and that's where you can also chime in in the comments field, which not many people do, but. Uh, being that I am somewhat egotistical, I always like to check to see if people are commenting on my things, and then I occasionally respond sure. to them as well. Um, I do movies badly. Podbean.com. Also, if you want to go there to listen to it in your whatever it is you're doing at the day, Nolan fixes teeth on Twitter. And oh, I forgot this. You can also email me at you do movies badly at gmail.com, which is something even fewer people do than chime in, in the comments field. But that's always a, a possibility as as well. So. Tyler, thank you for joining me again to uh, discuss... Well, thank you for joining me again, period. And thank you for discussing Mike Lee with me, because those are grammatically uh, correct. Um, One final thing before I let you go. Two-part question, I guess. Number one, because I I just saw it today. One, have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? And uh, two, 
top three Quentin Tarantino movies for you. All right. Uh, I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing it the minute I sign off with you. Okay. Um, my wife and I are going to go see it tonight. Um, and then top three in no particular order yep. is probably Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Glorious Bastards. Uh, that's in no particular order. Those are my top three as well. So I'm glad that we're in agreement about yeah. that. Um, I will say not to try and change it for you. Did not care for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Probably, probably at the bottom of the list for me in terms of Tarantino films. But yeah, I don't know anybody that says that it's like uh, like it's a top tier film of his. Um, I know that there are people that love it, and then like um, uh, David and I recorded with a with a guest um, on Thursday. The episode goes up uh, tomorrow, okay. and he did he hated he hated the movie. He uh-huh. really didn't like it. So yeah, it's it's not getting universal acclaim, and I'm actually. I'm perfectly open to not liking it. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, so, cause that's the thing is, you know, I think with certain directors, I'm perfectly fine to give them the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that they get a free pass. I mean, I love yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, mm-hmm. not a big fan of inherent vice as much as I wanted to be. Sure. Um, and I think there are some people that like, they've got certain directors like, all right, that's my guy. And so whatever that director does, they are on board with, mm-hmm. um, even if the movie is not that successful or what it's trying to do. So like I said, I'm perfectly, I'm perfectly willing to dislike it if I don't like it. Uh, but if I do, then so be it. Right. Well, there you have it. So listeners, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be reviewing naked and we'll also let you know what a Tyler think of once upon a time in Hollywood. And where hopefully it will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 